Hi, I'm Ray DeBicke, and this is the Urbanist Podcast, where we discuss news, information, and ideas about improving cities and quality of life. And I'm Natalie Argarius. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about things we're reading, whether they're city-related or not. Let's get some insight into the weird minds of the people running this podcast. Stick around. So, Natalie, coming off of a couple weeks ago, we were able to have Nathan Voss and the book Urbanist Book Club talked to him about uh, his book. And I thought when we were talking about an upcoming pod, maybe we just get to dig in a little bit on stuff that we're reading. Yeah. And, you know, um, when you said that right away, I felt like this little bit of shiver of uh, shame because... Um, I haven't been reading a lot of books lately. I've been reading a lot of um, articles and essays because, you know, as the mother of a six-month-old and someone who's not getting a lot of sleep, um, reading something that's more than 20 pages feels really daunting. You know, it is a completely legitimate excuse and not even an excuse. It is a legitimate uh, response to having a completely crazed child in the house. Mine have not been six months for about 12 years. Uh, and I still can't get through a book in a reasonable amount of time. I'm <laughs> Okay, but I have to say, I was impressed because when we first were corresponding about this, you were like, I'm going to talk about the two books I'm reading. And then, <laughs> and then today when we started chatting about it, you're like, actually, I have this stack of books that I'm kind of getting through or might get through. And so I was like, all right. The 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 quality of the books that uh, the the initial books I'm going to show off a little bit and be like ha, 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 I'm high minded about this stuff, but the uh, the rest of the books kind of go down the tubes from there. Oh. <laughs> So I am somebody who has a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. I know a lot of very snobby literary people. And I have to say that, like, you know, one of the most um, one of the most important things I think that happened in my life was when I really shook off a lot of those notions and pretensions. And it was like, you know what, I'm just going to read what I want when I want, how I want. I'm not going to feel like I have to be part of a scene or like, you know, I'm, a, you know, like some kind of, you know, particular advocate for a style of writing. It's like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to enjoy. Yeah. Basically kind of, kind of everything. And so uh, one thing I appreciate about you actually is you're always giving me recommendations for things I wouldn't really think about reading um, in a very positive way, because, you know, at the end of the day, like, wh why not be an omnivorous readers, you know, whether it be about things that relate to cities or, you know, fiction or whatever. It's like there, there's so much out there to explore through reading. I think it's one of the things that has kept me on my toes is the kiddos. And they are at the age uh, in middle school now where they are getting fed books that I have literally no concept of where these things came from. Uh, some of the books uh, they are, have read, um, I got into a little bit. There's a series called Keeper of the Lost Cities. Um, and it's uh, elves that need to protect Atlantis and other places like that that fell off the map. And I didn't expect to uh, finish any of those books or really had any idea where they came from to begin with, um, but had a good time reading through at least the first one. Um, there was a whole lot of blushing that I never had in books when I was that age. Um, so it's a little different than I read. 
So it's funny that you mentioned Lost Cities because actually right now I have a book on hold with Seattle Public Library called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age by Annalee Niewitz. And I'm excited um, to read this. Um, it might take me an awfully long time to get through. <laughs> I'm, you know, I might have to renew uh renew it um maybe more than once um but knew it did a couple other books didn't they i think so yeah um i'm not sure that i have read any of her um other books um, i'm looking at the author page on the library right now this one in particular though it it looks into um these four lost cities which are i'm going to say the ones i can pronounce first cahokia and um let's see Angkor, of course. And then there's one in central Turkey, which is Neolithic. And Catalahuk, I'm probably saying that wrong. And then, of course, Pompeii. You're doing better than I could. Thank you. Pompeii, which is easy to say. Um, And it gets into the archaeology, political changes, political turmoil. So I'm I'm super psyched um, to read about this. I read uh, an article about the... uh, the um, Neolithic city in Turkey a while back that said it like totally kind of um, takes apart a lot of our notions around like what is a society and what is a city and how do people live together and like do we need to have like institutions and hierarchy and stuff so I'm I'm super psyched to read this um, and I wasn't even planning to talk about this today. So this is just <laughs> like you talking about your kids reading about these lost cities. I was like, oh, yeah, this is an interest I have. But I want to hear from you. Like, what oh. what are these two books that you're making your way through right now? Uh, the the first one that I've been trying to. So I will be totally honest. And over the last year, I've gone through a divorce. And so when everybody hears that, they start suggesting books that they read when they were in different situations in their life. And the one that keeps coming up to the top is this book called Attached. And it really is this different perspective of how we connect to other people. And instead of saying that you're codependent or this or that you're a narcissist, it really breaks down whether the attachments you have with somebody are healthy. Um, and uh, it, it, the, it's, it's a, it's a two-by-two grid. And it runs the gamut of whether or not you are avoiding somebody or uh, an- anxious about being near somebody. So if you have low anxiety and low avoidance, you're in this kind of secure place. That's kind of the healthy relationship idea. And then if you kind of go towards the high anxiety end, when somebody doesn't call you back, you start worrying, oh, they're cheating on me, oh, they're running around, all this. And your initial reaction is grab onto them and hold on. And then, but if you're kind of low anxiety and somebody goes and does something to not be in communication with you, if you're an avoidant personality, the avoidance is ghosting. And so all of these things kind of balance out, like if somebody is in a relationship with, if somebody's anxious and in a relationship with an avoider, they glom on to the person and all of a sudden push them away. And so it's this interesting balance of things. And then there's this fourth corner where you're both anxious 
and avoidant all at the same time. And it flips back and forth. And that has its basis in early trauma and abuse and things like that. But most people, you're talking, do you glom on to somebody or do you push them away? So um, one question I have about a book like this, is it, does it contain narratives or is it largely driven by the science? What's fascinating about this particular one is each chapter, as it kind of unwinds some of this, opens up with their experience. Uh, the, the authors of Attached are Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. And they get into the discussions of uh, their, their psychiatrists and they um, talk about couples in therapy that they have um, that they have dealt with, you know, names changed, all that stuff. And so there's an actual grounding in, hey, this is what people look like when they're going through this. And there's also um, the science behind it of, you know, if your brain was doused over and over again with having, with being abandoned, then all of a sudden you glom onto people. And if you're continually beaten for uh, getting close to somebody, then you're going to push them away. So I, um, when I was pregnant, I actually read a book um, on a very similar topic that I really enjoyed, and it was called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment, and it goes into the roots of attachment theory, where it came from, and the fact that this idea of the strange situation was the beginning of starting to explore like what is attachment and those different kinds of attachment styles you mentioned. I only know of them because I read this book. Um, but the strange situation was uh, the invention of a, uh, a woman who was an anthropologist who wanted to study mothers' connections with their babies across different cultures. And what they would do is like put a baby and a mother in a room and observe them and then start introducing the baby to different kinds of stimuli, including a stranger and see how the baby react. And from that, they created, you know, this idea of the different attachment styles. And um, it was very fascinating. Um, I really enjoyed it. And so perhaps I will pick up the book you're reading as well, too, because it's I think it's it's valuable for all of us, you know, as humans um, to, to learn more about. Right. And the interesting part about connecting the interesting part about having this particular book is it's a weirdly foundational text. Um, and it has some worksheets in it too. Uh, but at the, uh, as, as you kind of go through the book, they, uh, you'll end up connecting it to all these other articles and things that you're reading out there. And like, there's another book out there that a whole bunch of people told me that I needed to get reading and it's called Polysecure by Jessica Fern. And she takes this, uh, this attachment theory and puts it into the polyamorous relationships, which I'm, I, I don't know it's, if it's the old Catholic upbringing or something else. It's just not my ballywick. And then, but what starts happening is they talk about broader types of attachment in a lot of these different places. Like you can be attached to your city and when it fails you, you can have a rupture in attachment. And so it's fascinating how many people are kind of plugging in different concepts into uh, this overall theory. 
You know, as you said that, I just had a very vivid memory of when I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, which maybe a lot of listeners are not familiar with. It is sometimes called the Seattle of Florida. I feel like I've said that before (laughs) on this podcast, Um, but it's this city in uh, western coastal, coastal uh, western Florida that is um, across the bay from Tampa. They also sometimes call themselves the other Bay Area, which I don't <laughs> think anybody who is either you know from there or lived there or whatever has heard before the other Bay Area. But there's a lot of really great things about St. Petersburg and a lot of really terrible things. And I didn't end up there by choice. I was a college student there, um, bounced around a bit in my 20s and twice ended up back there, not by choice, um, simply because I found jobs there when I was like really in need of work. And so it was like, oh God, I'm back here again. (laughs) Um, But I remember that, you know, during that era of my life, that song Bad Romance by Lady Gaga was like a radio hit. And that was how I felt about this particular city because there were times when I just loved it so much. Like I loved the nature. There was this, it has a beautiful string of parks along the waterfront in the downtown and, Mm -hmm. you know, true to the Florida form, I would like rollerblade there. (laughs) I would just be so happy. I mean, there'd be all these people out and it was just this really vibrant urban area. And then there were other parts that were like appallingly impoverished or really um, sprawltastic, which I feel like is a word we would throw around there that, you Mm. know, Seattle and the Pacific Northwest for all its faults in this regard, uh, like we don't talk about being sprawltastic here. There, it was like crazy. It was like there was this one state highway, which was like 99, where they're like, you know what we should do because we have too much traffic? We're going to make it a double decker. Wow. You know, that sounds like such a great idea. Very bad. Yeah. So, so I do think this idea of attachment, mm-hmm. yeah, it absolutely can be connected to places like cities too. It's amazing. Cause like I, when I moved out of Baltimore, we moved into a suburb and I had certain expectations on how I was going to live in that area. And there was a trust rupture in so many ways of my life in that area that I just was so done with it after a very short amount of time that I, I, I the attachment really spoke to me about place and trust you have in your neighborhood. So, yes. And, of course, there's the whole human relationship, too. So, heh. Double double bonus. <laughs> yeah. So so it sounds, Ray, like you like to read about science. Oh, that's a good question. Um, it, it probably stems from a far, far heavy bookshelf of science fiction. So, yes, definitely does. And the fact that Hitchhiker's Guide is at one end and uh, a whole bunch of Neil Stevenson's at the other end. Um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of science hanging out on my bookshelf. <laughs> so I, you know, I came prepared today actually to not talk about books, even though I love I love <laughs> reading. So I've mentioned two already. Um, but what I've been reading a lot of recently is this online publication called The Conversation. And um, it, okay, so in brief, what it is, is it's people who are subject matter experts. Everybody who writes for it has a PhD writing articles on their research and general topics of interest to them. What I really like about it is that it's published in multiple 
languages. And by that, I mean, like, the editions are totally different based on the language that you're reading. So huh. I'm lucky that I can read in English and French. And so I read the English, French Canada, and then French from France. But they also have Spanish, Indonesian, um, which is an interesting choice, but it's one of the languages. And then, you know, some other languages too, but they have a New Zealand, Australia, UK, all English and all different, which I just think is is really cool because you get these very different perspectives. And there's of course a lot of science writing, um, but also a lot of social science too, and a lot of urbanism, urban planning, um, so many articles devoted to those this you know topic area that we cover uh, in our publication and in our podcasts and research and that you know we're both pretty into just in general in life i can't i can't say enough about how much i enjoy it is there a is there an article or two that you've been super interested in or completely came out of nowhere that you liked a lot yes so so one that um it relates to the last podcast episode we did about taxes uh <laughs> was one that was about you know american as americans we spend more time filing our taxes. And we also spend a lot of money, which um, people in many other countries don't do. In fact, most other countries would be appalled to find out that like we pay, not everyone, of course, but many people will pay for help with their taxes. They'd be like, what? Right. Why should I have to do that? That seems really unfair. <laughs> and when you think about it, it's a really weird thing to do. And so in general, I've always thought that, you know, our tax system is too complex. It has too many loopholes. It favors the wealthy, all these things. And I'm not going to say that those things aren't true. But what this article brought to my attention is the fact that we have this really complex tax system allows us to be more targeted in terms of how we reinvest certain dollars into our economy and huh. also allows us to um, incentivize certain kinds of behaviors that we want to see in our economy. So like one example of this is um, I got a tax benefit when I installed solar on my roof, like I think it was about eight years ago. Mm. A lot of other countries wouldn't have that kind of um, benefit written into their tax code. Or, you know, recently President Biden has put forth some pretty, um, pretty strong tax benefits for people who are purchasing electric vehicles, which is meant to bolster that market. A lot of other countries wouldn't have that. So it's it's kind of a surprising benefit of um, of what, you know, tax system we're living with. It's kind of it's fascinating because you end up with the the you know the Scandinavian countries are just asking for a ton of taxes and they get an enormous amount of services in exchange for those taxes. Whereas we complain all the time about how high taxes are and then just start scraping out all of these little loopholes and things like that. So it's it, it has a picture in my brain of like an anthill that there's just a big block of tax and then a whole bunch of little tunnels through it that if you can navigate, you get out to the other side without having to actually pay anything. But that's fascinating to think about it from the perspective that it, it allows for um, incentivizing rather than it, it, it's a loophole. Yeah. And it was just 
one of the things that I like to have happen when I read is learn something new that surprises me. So that was something I really enjoyed. Another article that I read in the um, French edition, actually just yesterday, that also kind of blew my mind, um, was about how people have been dreaming of a Paris without cars since 1790. That was the first time that a pamphlet was written that oh. said, we need to remove wheeled vehicles, which at that time were carriages, from the streets of Paris. <laughs> 1789. So that leads the whole, when was the French Revolution? Yeah, now, 1790. Would... So so let's see. Let I think, gosh, and of course I'm forgetting. Um. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's right around that time. It says, you know, if you're familiar with the ideas of the Enlightenment and the bringers of the revolution, then, <laughs> you know, this idea of declaring the right of the man to the streets of the city should resonate with you. I don't think there's a, one would not normally put a guillotine and car free lifestyle in an overlapping Venn diagram. But I don't think we're too far at these far from it these days. Well, yeah, and actually this pamphlet, it went into how these carriages were causing deadly accidents and putting pedestrians' lives at risk, much like, you know, what we're dealing with with cars now. And it even gets into the creation of the sidewalk, which was only created because there was this need to create a safe space for pedestrians apart from these vehicles. That that Add that to the list of things that you're like, oh, that had to be invented. You know, because it's like, oh, we had to invent spoons at some point. Yes, we honestly did. And sometimes we forget at how unique and so much city stuff is in being actually created by somebody. Okay. And I want to get into something that was also created by people that relates to cities. And then I'm going to cede the floor to you to Ray, for, to you, Ray, for a while. Um, but this is because I want to. Once again, I just, like I said, I love the conversation. <laughs> and a lot of this, some of the articles are like some pretty heavy, intense science, um, but others are on topics like, why are more Americans painting their yards, their lawns, <laughs> I should say? Why? Why, why are we? To, does it come down to the um, Boise State football? Um, you know, and their that blue was. Field? That wasn't actually brought up in this <laughs> article, but the article was written by. Um, a, a writer of a book called The Obsessive Quest for the Perfect Lawn, American Green. And um, it gets into, you know, the history of this and the fact that, you know, we had Levittown in New York, that first sort of model suburban development in which people began to really want to show their yard in a state of what they thought was perfection, which was green and luxurious and weed free. Um, you know, there's been a lot of negative environmental consequences of that related to fertilizer use and pesticides. Um, but sometimes, you know, even once all those chemicals were dumped on yards, they just still, they weren't, they weren't green enough. I mean, you know, we have different varieties of grass. Some are greener than others. Some are green for a part of the year and, you know, other parts not. Like, you know, in Washington state, my, my grass and my like shared garden area behind where I live is green in the winter, but not in the summer, you know, <laughs> um, which isn't great. So. Uh, in some people's point of view. 
So actually, grass painting has existed since the 1960s. <laughs> uh, do, do you think it came about the same time when people were putting up those uh, spray painted Christmas trees that had the. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, but I will say, you know, like I also, I really don't like like synthetic grass. Like I see it a fair bit when I walk around, maybe not a ton, but I would say like one out of every like 15 yards I see mm. is synthetic. And I've even begun to see it in front of apartment complexes, like new ones that were just put in. Um, and it always makes me sad. There's something about it that just feels like so devoid of life. Well, Natalie, if we're talking about good articles that we're running across these days, one thing that caught my attention this weekend was actually in the New York Times Sunday section. Um, and what it was is it's an article by Adam Nagorny and Jeremy Peters talking about how a campaign against transgender rights mobilized conservatives. I read that one. And when you mentioned before the idea of AstroTurf, it popped into my brain that this is the epitome of astroturfing, that we hear all of these uprisings against drag shows, against uh, shared bathrooms, against trans uh, folks. And really, it came from a purposeful study by GOP operatives to figure out the best way to promote hate. Yeah, I read that, you know, the the issue, well, the, the topics of abortion rights and access to abortion and gay marriage had simply not swung in their favor. And the, the polling was showing that, you know, even Republicans were almost evenly split when it came to supporting gay marriage. And so it was no longer something that they could use to kind of rally the troops and kind of uh, fan the flames, really, of, of, of social discontent. And so this, you know, but they did find that a lot more Americans were ambivalent about some of these trans questions, in particular questions um, that related to young people, like mm -hmm. how young is too young to undergo hormone therapy or gender reassignments therapy or, you know, things like that. And um, decided that this was going to be where they would kind of stake their polarization claim. Staking a polarization claim is an amazing way to put it. And it, it, it really struck me because having a couple of kids in the house, I hear their understanding of gender identity and sexuality is so vastly past anything that I understood growing up. And it is healthy and fantastic. And to have a whole bunch of old fogies whip around and use this to get themselves into office is not just offensive to me. It's also blinding rage inducing because it's putting kids in danger. They're so in the weeds on danger to children that they can't see the danger they are putting kids in by denying health care to needed health care to kids today. It's disappointing, but not surprising, I guess, is what I will say on the matter. And, um, you know, as a society, there's a lot of uh, of big 
big questions to explore and ask, um, you know, around these issues. And there is definitely uh, a difference in um, generations and culture that is, is pretty apparent. And um, I'm appreciative of the fact that the New York Times, which I just have to say, I, I love the New York Times. <laughs> um, I mean, not to say that I mean, no publication is perfect, but um, when I started reading the New York Times as like a college student, it just changed my life. I wish only I had started reading it earlier. Um, and the magazine articles are particularly well done, I think, generally. The fact that they were kind of really backing up some of the things I may have sort of felt, if that mm -hmm. makes sense, but then like saying, no, actually this was the intention. And, and these are the, the statistics and, you know, the, the hard figures that kind of back up what's going on. I was, I was impressed by that as, as a piece of journalism. I completely agree and have built my Sundays around getting a physical copy of the New York times for years. And for a couple of months, it's been like you said, sometimes it's a little harder to read in different periods. And it was like, ah, I'm going to stop getting this because I feel like there's a whole bunch of paper accruing in the house that I haven't, I'm, I'm behind on reading. And so it's like, okay, can I get a grip on this or should I just let it, can I, can I totally Marie Kondo this and send it away? So what I have a really hard time sending away is a, another publication from New York called The New Yorker, which I'm really lucky to get because I have a neighbor who generously gives me his New Yorkers. And he also had been saving them up for years. And so sometimes I get like 10 at the same time. Nice. It's great. I love it. Um, and a particular um, article that I read recently that I wanted to talk about in this podcast, because once again, it just it kind of blew my mind and it showed me the power of how you can learn new information that really makes you consider the world. And I would say in this case, the universe a little bit differently. And this was an article called the UFO papers by Gideon Lewis Krauss, which is all about unidentified aerial phenomena Ooh. and not just, you know, like, so, so it was the New York times who published articles about some of the um, sightings that had occurred, uh, that were done by military um, pilots and that, you know, were generally not explainable. And, you know, even Barack Obama came out and said, yeah, we don't know what this is. Well, this, <laughs> which for me, when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, all this time, you know, I was talking to like that weirdo at the party or whatever. <laughs> and I thought that they were just making something up. Like maybe there was something to it. So this, um, but this particular, um, you know, it's a very long form article. It gets into like the history of uh, of UFOs and like how there was a period in time where actually they were taken really seriously. And then there was an intentional effort on the part of the government to say like, no, we will not take this seriously anymore. And part of that had to do with the Cold War and the fact that there were, you know, Russian craft, American craft, whatnot, floating around, things like that. And so there was a, there was a, there was actually a vested interest in like not getting the public like too interested and too hyped about this. Um, and I will say reading through it, I, I am a skeptical person just by nature. So I'm not like ready to say that all these UAPs are, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Venice 
people from vet from venus they have like a venus savians or something you know they have some name for it you know or whatever they call them and i just i felt like the writer did a wonderful job though of like never going into parody and never being mean-spirited while also like showing the the whole messy breadth of what's out there around this, which was just like so much bigger and so much more compelling than I could have imagined. And there really, there really may actually be aliens visiting earth, which was that that's how I left this article. And, and like I said, I am a skeptic. And so I was like, wow, this, this is fascinating. I am I, aliens fall into the same category as ghosts in my brain. It's like, you know, that would be fantastic because it means we're not alone. And I I really don't believe we're alone in the universe. It would be much more troubling to me if we were. Um I, I've I've never come down on the side of uh them them actually being here. So it would be that's fascinating that it comes out your con concept of it comes out on the side of you know, that's that's a that's a honest to goodness possibility. Yes. And I will say that, like, I never also considered that either. And and I'm still, I don't feel like I'm 100% there. I'm, I'm just, I'm feeling like, okay, maybe it's not the closed book mm -hmm. that I thought it was. Now, I will say in the, in the goofy end of what's being read, uh, hold on your, hold on your pants for this one. I got to put out there. I have the soft spot for this one author named Chuck Tingle. And he is a um, essentially writing parodies of Harlequin romances that are so over the top. Um, but some of them have to do with the space aliens. And I'm 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 curious how many of these these books that I'm going to get away with mentioning the titles of um, before we get our uh, family availability. Um, taken, uh, taken. Oh away. my God. I just Googled Chuck Tingle <laughs> because I was like, I have to see. And what I love is like this, like picture of like this, like buff tan, like Asian man with like no body hair. And it says humble book bun. I'm like, Ooh, what's that? <laughs> and there's, but there's a whole series called the space Raptor butt trilogy. That goes into a homosexual love affair between a space alien uh, velociraptor and a human who is stationed on the moon. See, and Chuck, because I, I just, you know, I, Chuck, Tingle is just a funny last name. So he and he's Dr. Chuck Tingle, according to Goodreads. <laughs> he's also a Taekwondo grandmaster, almost black belt. I think that's funny because, like, wouldn't you have to be a black belt to be a, a grandmaster? I don't know. But it, it it popped up on social media in a couple of different forms, and it was one of those things of, okay, do I really want to find out um, the 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 helicopter man series where it's literally about a man who is a helicopter and what he does to his love interests over the course of time, and it's like. That is – that's high-quality reading. And really what it is is it's a testament to the utility of like the Kindle era, the ebook era because these things are like 99 cents each and they're 3,000 words. 
So it's it's somewhere between a long form article and a a short Harlequin romance, and the covers are so perfect that they just crack me up. So the long the the the, the epitome of what I'm trying to say is. Uh, we're hoping for Chuck Tingle style aliens more than anything else, I think. And it looks like he's branching out into horror now, too. So he <laughs> might have more to read. <laughs> so I wanted to mention, you know, in sort of non traditional reads, um, a children's book actually that I read recently. So even though my baby's only six months old, um, I really enjoy reading to him. And to be honest, like, you know, I'm sure his like level of language understanding is a lot like what his speech is, which is like, la, la, rah, 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 you know, Perfect. so, yep. but, but I am more interested to spend this time with him and like more motivated to do it if I'm, if I'm reading new stuff. So we've been going to the library a few times a week and I just pick up kind of almost at random, a bunch of children's books and some of them are great and some of them, a lot of them are not great. And one thing I also have come to realize is that like in terms of the science, so many of them are not vetted, you know, like I'll have one like lion lives in the jungle. It's like, Lions no, they don't, don't live in the jungle. I'm like, no wonder some of my ideas around things when I was a kid were kind of screwed up, you know, because it's like nobody is like fact checking these things. Anyway, there was this book that I read that um, was called Small in the City, and it is by a Canadian writer and illustrator, Sydney Smith. It's beautifully, beautifully illustrated. It's evocative. And it's the type of story that at the end, you're like, oh my God, this is what it's really about. And then you want to go back and read it again and read it again. And, you know, because a lot of times with children's books, we do end up reading them many times because oh, kids so love- many times. Yeah. I was like, if you are an urbanist parent, or if you're just simply, you know, somebody who loves cities and- uh, loves reading children's books and loves beautiful illustrations, strongly recommend this book. Um, it really, it, it made an impact with me. The story kind of stuck with me and I, and I, I feel like that will probably happen to most people that read it. That's amazing. Cause the, you, you, you're exactly right. The, the, the children's books that are written directly at children where they're the primers and, you know, see Dick run, see Dick, jump you know those types of things and then you kind of take that second step and as a parent you start realizing that it's hard to read cat in the hat over and over again so are there a lot of words in this one or is it fairly brief how's it um it's actually much more visually based than text-based. In fact, there are uh, multiple pages that are just visuals with a mm. small amount of text that's in it um if you're interested in this book, I actually found a video in which you can listen to someone uh, reading it aloud as they page through the book. So you can watch it and kind of get the experience. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it's, it's in, to that, in that regard, it's almost like a, a sort of a mini graphic novel. Um, I'm so happy that folks are legitimizing graphic novels and visual storytelling medium. And it really has been in my lifetime and yours too, that I know I was always told, put the comic books down and read something legitimate. And the fact that the kids now are hearing, you know, those 
comics are legitimate stories. If that's the way you're getting into reading, do it. Yeah, I read something um, recently and, you know, probably was in the New York Times that was about how there are real concerns about children not reading and how children should be taught reading. And there's a lot of debate around what is the is the right way to teach children how to read. And I do think that the number one thing that you need is you need the child to be like really engrossed in what they're reading and to make a connection to it. All right, folks. Well, thanks for sticking with us and listening to some of the things that we're reading or we have read. And we'd like to know what you're reading. You know, reach out to us and tell us about what's been your interest of late. Um, or if there's anything else um, that you want to communicate to us, even if it's not super literary, don't hesitate and send us an email at podcast at theurbanist.org. We would also love to hear your favorite Chuck Tingle story. We'll be back next week, whether or not you're actually reading Chuck Tingle. I'm Natalie Argarius. And I'm Ray Dubicki. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Sorry. I, sw- I, sw- I swallowed water, and somehow it made my nose burn. <laughs> so, <laughs> I keep drinking water and coughing more. I'm just like, oh, I'm drowning.